0: Second Samuel chapter number 13. How many remember the TV show, The Brady Bunch? Would you raise your hand if you remember The Brady Bunch? Teenagers, how do you know what The Brady Bunch is? Y'all watch YouTube or something? I barely know what The Brady Bunch is. But in almost every episode, there, there's a problem that can be neatly wrapped up in 30 minutes or less. Right? Whether it's a broken vase or a bruised nose or an injured ankle or, or a changing voice. The problem is never insurmountable for the Brady Bunch. There's no crisis that cannot be overcome by timely advice from perfectly engaged parents as well as perfectly respectful responses from the children. The Brady Bunch. I, I talked to Joyce's mother this morning in the foyer. It's a timely conversation. And I said, man, we just have enjoyed so much having Joyce around the church and all of that. And she says, you know what? God gave me the perfect child when she gave me Joyce. I'm telling you, she never woke up in the middle of the night. It's like she came out knowing Jesus. And she said, if, 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 if Joyce hadn't have been first, I don't know if I'd have had any more kids. And uh, I don't know if I believe that or not. Um but it was like a Brady Bunch type situation in that family, I guess. Tonight, we're going we're gonna to see a family that is far from the Brady Bunch. We're going to look at King David's family, which had a problem that couldn't be neatly wrapped up and worked out in 30 minutes or less. In fact, it's a problem that would haunt David and his family for years to come. It's a sin problem. I'm calling the message tonight, the ugliness of sin. Because that's exactly what's before us in our text. We we see this outworking of sin and its consequences in Israel's royal family. And church, this shouldn't be a surprise to us if we've been paying attention to the last couple of messages out of 2 Samuel. God told David that this would happen. Would you look back at chapter 12, verse number 10? He said this Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. So here's what happened David sins big time in chapter 11. God gives the consequences for his sin in chapter 12. And in chapter 13, we start to see the fulfillment of those consequences in his own home. Listen, this is what makes sin so ugly. There are always consequences. And those consequences often work themselves out in our family. They weave their way through through our children's lives. And the lives of those we love the most. And that's the case with David. The consequences of his sin came through his two sons, Amnon and Absalom, as well as his nephew, Jonadab. What I want to do in the sermon tonight is look over the ugliness of sin in each of these characters' life, and hopefully as a result, here's the purpose. I want our church to be warned about how ugly and out of control sin can become in our lives and in our own families if we're not careful. Let's start by studying Amnon. I'm going to label him Amnon the offender. Amnon the offender. Chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. Look at your Bible. And it came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. And Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. We're given this idea that Amnon became infatuated. I want to be very careful. The text is very, very graphic. It's it's dark. And I know we've got children in here, so I want to be as careful as I can, but still say what the Bible says. But we're given this idea that Amnon became infatuated with this perverted type of love for his half-sister Tamar. In fact, the sexual lust had taken such a stronghold in his life that he became sick to his stomach. He he probably lost his appetite for food because his entire appetite had been given to lust. The end of verse 2 said Amnon thought it hard to do anything to Tamar. That was probably a combination of several things. Maybe Tamar, he knew Tamar was obviously his relative and he knew in his gut how abnormal it was to have this perverted crush on his sister. Number two, Amnon would have been aware of the law in Leviticus 18 against incest. No doubt he was fighting his God-given conscience, which might have been deterring him from fulfilling his lust. And you know how that is when you've got this wrestling match going on inside of you 24-7. It could have just been practical. Tamar was a royal daughter. She was under royal protective oversight, so it would seem impossible for Amnon to ever get Tamar in a place where he could seduce her. About the time that Amnon was absolutely sick to his stomach and out of options for how to fulfill his lust, here comes his cousin with a master plan. We'll talk more in depth about Jonadab here in a second. But after he got this plan from Jonadab uh, for how to get into Tamar's room, he decided to act on his lust. I want to I read several verses here, a chunk of verses, and I want you to follow along, and I want you to, to know that because of the graphic nature... Of these verses because we have obviously several generations in the congregation and I don't want to dive into all the specifics of this. I just want to read it. But what we see is the tragedy that ensues when we let our lust get out of control. Verse number six. So Amnon lay down. Here was the plan. He's going to make himself sick. And when the king was come to see him, Amnon said unto the king, I pray thee, let Tamar, my sister, come and make me a couple cakes in my sight that I may eat at her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, go now to thy brother Amnon's house and dress him meat. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house and he was laid down and she took flour and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and did bake the cakes. And she took a pan and poured them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, have out all men from me. In other words, tell everybody to get out of here. And they went out every man from him. And Amnon said unto Tamar, Bring the meat into the chamber, that I may eat of thine hand. And Tamar took the cakes that she had made and brought them into the chamber chamber to Amnon, her brother. And when she had brought them unto him to eat, he took hold of her and said unto her, Come, lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, Nay, my brother, do not force me. For no such thing ought to be done in Israel. Do not thou this folly. And I, whither shall I cause my shame to go? And as for thee, thou shalt be as one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, I pray thee, speak unto the king, for he will not withhold me from thee. Howbeit he would not hearken unto her voice, but being stronger than she forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. And Amnon said unto her, Arise, be gone. She said unto him, There is no cause. This evil in sending me away is greater than the other that thou didst unto me. But he would not hearken unto her. This is so terrible. Then he called his servant that ministered unto him and said, Put now this woman out for me and bolt the door after her. And she had a garment of divers colors upon her. For with such robes were the king's daughters that were virgins apparelled. Then his servants brought her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head. And rent her garment of divers colors that was on her. And laid her hand on her head. And went on crying. We see a man who had a sinful desire. Did you you, you feel the weight of this text? He didn't deal with his sinful desire. He let it grow. He let it fester until finally he saw no other option but to act on it. And then after he acted on his lust, he hated the object of his lust. And he disregarded the object of his lust. This is about as ugly as sin can get right here. I'm here to tell you that uncontrolled lust has the potential to turn us all into selfish animals. Into adulterers, even into rapists. There's no telling the length that one will go to fulfill an uncontrolled lust. That's what we learn from Amnon. We better be killing our sin before it kills us and hurts others. It's been said that sin is like a fire that if left unchecked will eventually burn the entire house down. C.S. Lewis said, sin is like a cancer that never stops growing in the background until you suddenly realize that it has eaten away all your desire for God. Think about it this way. Imagine you bought a 5,000 square foot house in beautiful condition with all the upgrades and the previous owner said, you can have everything to you in the house and I'll, I'll give it to you for a, a great price but but i still want one little small nail in the front foyer you can have it all i just want one little small nail you get the whole thing i want the one nail I'll say you agree what's he going to do with the nail imagine he decided to hang on that nail a diseased dead deer carcass what would happen what would hang on that one small nail would eventually spoil the entire house. Beautiful immaculate house. One thing hanging on one small nail in a 5,000 square foot house would spoil the rest of the home. That's exactly what the enemy did with this small area that Annon let go unchecked in his life over a long period of time. Through his one lustful desire, he smuggled in spiritual death for his entire house. This one sin put this home on a trajectory that would never recover. What is it for you tonight? What one sinful desire do you have hanging on the nail that you think is small and really not that big of a deal? Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, describes our lust like a spider web. At first they can scarcely be seen and they seem as though you could break from them in a moment. Then they become silken bonds, then firmer still until a man seems to be enveloped in a tangle of cables and every cable hardens and becomes as iron or triple steel until at last there is no escaping. I believe Spurgeon is right, you can let your lust grow to a point where you can no longer escape and you'll be sick until that lust becomes an action. You'll manipulate, you will plot, you will lie until that desire can be a reality. It gets worse because what we learn from Amnon, I want you to hear me church, is that the lust that promised so much pleasure will quickly turn into disgust. For months, he dreamt of Tamar. For months, he desired Tamar. For months, he was sick over Tamar. And when he finally got what he wanted, he realized he didn't want what he got. He hated her. And even worse, maybe he hated himself for what he did. Did you know there's actually scientific evidence for why this happens? When we're controlled by our lust, there's a portion of our brain that is slowly disengaged. It's called the prefrontal cortex. It's the part of the brain that we really need to make good decisions. What happens if we keep chasing after this lust is is, is those, those neurons in our prefrontal cortex become numb. They make no impact on us. But here's what's crazy. When we finally act on that lust, when we finally get what we're chasing after, almost instantaneously the prefrontal cortex lights up again. It's almost engaged immediately. That's why after a sin, after a stupid decision, guilt comes on us so quickly. In some cases, even disgust and hate and this sense of vileness and regret that we feel, we just feel slimy. Because the part of our brain that connects our choices with our consequences, well, it's working again. And now we can see the folly of our decision, something we couldn't see five minutes ago. That's why we got to walk in the spirit because when the power of our flesh causes that prefrontal cortex to shut off, it makes us vulnerable to do just about anything to get what we want. We need the Holy Spirit's conviction and direction to lead us out of that temptation because our brain's not working real well. Are you following this? The point is simple. Don't put yourself in that position to start with. Kill that lust while it's small so that you don't slowly numb those neurons in that part of your brain that disconnects your, your, your choices from your consequences. Don't feed your lust by thinking about it and daydreaming about it and talking about it with others and planning for it. Recognize your sinful lust for what it is. Respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction and kill it before it kills you and hurts others. That's Amnon the offender. Let's move on to Jonadab the influencer. Look at verse 3. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. Jonadab was a very subtle man. And he said unto him, Why art thou, being the king's son, lean from day to day? Wilt thou not tell me? And Amnon said unto him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And Jonadab said unto him, Lay thee down on thy bed. Make thyself sick. And then when thy father cometh to see thee, saying to him, I pray thee, let my sister Tamar come and give me meat and dress the meat in my sight, that I may see it and eat it at her hand. Let's talk about this. The narrator called Jonadab Amnon's friend. It was his cousin. But he called him Annon's friend because I think the narrator wanted us to understand that Jon- Jonadab had some type of influence in Annon's life. Verse 3 said he was a subtle man. That means he was skillful, he was sharp, he was crafty. And by the way, those aren't bad attributes unless they're used for evil. Having to know that your strength can be your weakness. When when Jonadab noticed Amnon's sickly disposition, he said, you're a king's son. You're supposed to be well fed. What's going on here? Amnon said, I'm in love with my half-sister Tamar. Now at this point, Jonadab should have spoken up and challenged Amnon. He should have pointed out the error of Amnon's way. He should have rebuked his cousin for having such sinful feelings. But instead, he influenced him for evil. He helped him devise a plan for how to fulfill that lust. See, the ugliness of sin plays itself out in Jonadab's life in that he used his influence to enable and encourage sin in somebody else's life. I want you to hear me, church. There will be times when you'll be in the same position as Jonadab. You'll be given influence in somebody's life during a very vulnerable time in their life and you'll have the opportunity to challenge them in their sin or enable them in their sin. Would to God you would be willing to risk the friendship or at least risk the friend's approval by standing up to their sin. Young people, this will play out in your life all the time. You hear me, junior high, high school students, college students. Because you're in a place in your life where temptation is so strong and vulnerability is so real and so many changes are happening, you're going to find yourselves in compromising situations almost daily. Young people, when you see one of your friends in a situation that is sinful, do not encourage them in their sin. Hey, have the guts to compassionately take a stand and warn them about the danger of what they're doing or what they're saying or who they're hanging out with or the direction they're headed. Imagine if Jonadab was a real friend. Imagine the heartache that maybe his influence could have saved. Young people, you have no idea. The stand that you take to one of your friends that's headed in the wrong direction, you have no idea what that might do, what that might save them from. But but when you're silent, that means an endorsement. You're scared to say anything because you're scared to, to lose the friend or, or to look awkward or, or, or weird or anything like that. Just, just, just be aware of the fact that you are missing an opportunity to influence your friend for Good. It's not just kids though. This plays out in parenting. Parents, we have to be bold with our kids. The older they get, the harder it is to stand up to them. They become more clever with learning how to say the words that will make us feel bad and guilty for saying no. When we see the disappointment on their face and we hear the anger in their voices, when we have to watch them miss out on certain activities, we'll, we'll feel awful. We'll be, we'll be tempted then to stop challenging them and parenting them and guiding them with conviction. And eventually they'll become the parent. If we're not careful, we'll start letting them do things and wear things and watch things and listen to things and go to places that we used to stand against. And whether the parent realizes it or not, they'll subtly be encouraging their kids in their sin instead of challenging them in their sin. Parents, we have 18 years to protect our kids. 18 years, that's it. They live to be 80 or 85 or 90. 18 is such little time. Don't quit when they turn 14. This plays out in marriages. The advantage of having a godly spouse is that we have an accountability partner in life. We have someone that sees us at our best. We have someone that sees us at our worst. And they can identify blind spots in our life better than anybody. Hear me, whether you're a husband or a wife, you need to be careful to to use your influence in your spouse's life to challenge them in their sin, not encourage them in it. That'll require boldness. It's not, it sometimes won't be taken as you intended it but but you may very well be on the front lines of defense for your spouse's integrity your spouse's reputation don't be silent take that role seriously and hear me if you have a spouse that doesn't just fight for your happiness but fights for your holiness by bringing things up that need to be dealt with and addressed and talked about you need to thank God for that spouse You need to learn to receive with humility what they're saying as a gift of grace from the Lord to keep you from your sin. If you turn a hard heart towards the one person in your life that knows you better than anybody, you are forfeiting spiritual growth. This is going to play out even among Christians in the same church. We're called upon as a church to provoke one another to love and good works. First Thessalonians, we're called upon to warn the unruly. Matthew 18, we're called upon to confront unrepentant sin. The church and those in it aren't expected just to remain silent, mind their own business and turn the other way when they see a brother or sister that's heading down a path of sinful destruction. We are obsessed in America today with privacy. So everybody come to church and mind your own business. And I, I get it. There's a balance. We don't want to be busybodies. We don't need to be li- worrying about how everybody else is doing, how they're not doing. But when God has connected you providentially with a brother or sister in Christ and you have a, a special provoking type relationship with them and you see them heading in the wrong direction, it is most cruel for you to remain silent. We tend to hear people say that they don't like church. Well, because ch- people at church judge them for their mistakes. And sometimes that's true. But I I don't believe that it's the judgmental members of churches that Satan uses the most. I think it's the silent members. The ones who fear to say anything because they don't want to be viewed as judgmental. You know there's a way to challenge somebody's sin and not be condescending and hurtful when you do it? Jesus taught us to do it privately. That's a good step. Privately in Matthew 18. The Apostle Paul told us in Galatians six, "You do it with carefulness, with meekness, with humility. Part of being a meaningful church member is is keeping each other accountable and being open to that accountability. And let me say this with God's help, i don't want to ever be a Jonadab in this pulpit. i don't want to ever skip over hard passages and messy passages and challenging truths like Second Samuel chapter thirteen, because I 'm nervous about offending somebody. Let me be clear, I don't want to offend anybody. Me and my wife talk about this after every Lord's Day. I grieve to think that I do that sometimes. But listen, I also don't want to allow my fear of man to become greater than my fear of God. I don't want to ever become more concerned about you liking me than being true to the Word. I don't want to ever enable you in your sin because I'm too afraid to confront you as your under-shepherd in your sin. And by the way, I hope you're not afraid to confront me and mine. Because I'm a sinner too. Unless you think that you can't possibly see yourself challenging your friends, your family members, your spouse, your kids, your fellow church members. Consider the words of Solomon. He said, faithful are the wounds of a friend. But the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. We got a lot of kissing enemies in the church today. I'd rather be a faithful friend that wounds than a deceitful enemy that enables. The ugliness of sin played itself out in the life of Amnon the offender. Jonadab the influencer. Then notice this, Absalom the avenger. Look at verse 20. And Absalom her brother said unto her, Hath Amnon thy brother been with thee? Behold now thy peace, my sister. He is thy brother. Regard not this thing. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But when King David heard of all these things, he was very wroth. We'll talk about that in just a second. Because he did nothing about it, Absalom began to fume in his spirit. And Absalom spake unto his brother, Amnon neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon. Because he had forced his sister Tamar. And it came to pass after two full years... That Absalom had sheep shears in Belhazor, which is beside Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. Now we won't read anymore for the rest for the sake of time, but here's what happened. When Absalom first heard about it, he brought Tamar into his house to watch over her. He 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 tried to advocate for her to the king, but the king didn't do anything about it. So he took matters into his own hands and, and, and he he let his anger toward his brother simmer and boil. For two full years before he couldn't take it any longer. And he made this plan and it was simple. Sheep shearing. That was an occasion for celebration just like the harvest for a farmer would be. So Absalom has a sheep shearing celebration about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. He invites all the king's sons including Amnon. He got Amnon drunk and had his men kill Amnon. Revenge. Now I'm not saying that Amnon didn't deserve to be killed. Frankly I think he did. But Absalom didn't go about it the right way. The ugliness of sin. Played out in his life. Through anger. And bitterness. And eventually murder. Just like David killed a man. His son killed his own brother. And I've seen the ugliness of of sin play itself out this way. In so many Christians lives. There was some kind of injustice or disagreement in their life. Disappointment fractured relationship and instead of dealing with it in the right way they let it boil in their heart sometimes for years like Absalom did and eventually the anger turned into bitterness because anger always grows and it took root in their heart and that bitterness led them down a path that got very ugly over time And maybe their wrath didn't play itself out in actual murder. But I have seen with my own eyes bitterness that has caused one to lose their marriage. Bitterness that has caused one to lose their job. Bitterness that has caused one to lose their relationship with their kids. Bitterness that has caused one to lose the respect of their employees or to lose a customer altogether. Bitterness that has caused a church member to check out mentally out of a good church. They still come in body, but mentally they're not here. Or they take the next step and they walk away entirely from a good church. I've seen bitterness take two friends That loved each other and did life together for many years. One of them got hurt, couldn't let go, and they became distant. That is heartbreaking to me. God providentially connects you with another individual. They hurt you and then you're done. Hear me, that's not God's plan. All because we let hurt grow. Look at this verse. Hebrews looking diligently. Lest any man fail of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. And thereby many be defiled. Look at the first two words. Looking Diligently, We have to be diligent about pulling up the roots of bitterness in our life on a regular basis. Or eventually like weeds do to a garden. They will overtake our heart. They'll poison our spirit. It'll, it'll divide our friendships. It'll hinder the unity in our church. And it'll make a complete mess of our lives. Bitterness is dangerous. It's dangerous. We've seen the ugliness of sin in the life of Amnon. The life of Jonadab, the life of Absalom. Here's my question. What about David? He's the last character I want to look at. I'm going to label him David the bystander. Verse 21, but when King David heard of all these things, he was very wroth. Now what dad wouldn't be very wroth? Dad worth his salt anyway. Daughter got taken advantage of. He he ought to be an angry man. Good dad he is. Not so quick. Because that's the end of the story. There's no action that follows his indignation. There's anger without justice. Not only is that bad because he's Tamar's dad. It's bad because he's the king of Israel. Amnon broke God's law which clearly forbids incest and rape. Yet David as a father and David as a king does Nothing. The ugliness of sin plays itself out in the life of David through the passivity towards sin. If you didn't hear me tonight, please, please engage. We're talking about the man that stood up to a lion. The man that stood up to a bear. The man that stood up to Goliath when nobody else would, in this moment, would do nothing for his little girl. I believe it was David's passivity that set the course for Absalom's sinful response. You understand Absalom grew up hearing stories of his dad's bravery? David's finest men were hanging out on the porch of the palace and Absalom saw them. And said, hey, tell me about the time my dad beat up a lion. Did you see it? Tell me about the time my dad beat up Goliath. Did you get to see that? I hear everybody talking about people wrote songs about him and all this amazing stuff. Can you tell me that story? And they would tell him his story. And then Absalom grows up. Where's his dad's courage now? This angered Absalom to the point of bitterness as he thought to himself, Why does everyone else get my dad's courage but I don't? Why will he fight for justice in his kingdom, but not in his own home? And so Absalom said, I'm going to do it myself. And Absalom was never the same ever again. It's amazing to me, and I've got a burden tonight. It's amazing to me how good of a king that David had been in his kingdom for these years. Yet how poor of a father he was at home. He was a hero in his kingdom. They wrote songs about him. But his passivity and inaction as a father made him a villain at home. Parents, especially fathers, would you listen tonight? Winning at home is more important than winning in the kingdom. You can win in the kingdom, but if you lose at home, you're a loser. And I am too. I'm afraid if many fathers were as passive at work as they are at home, they wouldn't have a job. I'm going to say that again. If many fathers were as passive at work as they are at home, they wouldn't have a job today. Personally speaking, I grieve to look back at the seasons of my marriage and my fatherhood. When I won as a pastor, but I lost as a father. And as a husband, I grieve at the seasons of my life when I won at work, but I lost at home. And I know we have to provide for our families, men. And I know that requires time and diligence away from home. I know it makes us tired at times. But you hear me, our families cannot keep getting our leftovers. Our families cannot be an accessory to our lives when we have time for them. Would to God we'd have some men tonight who were spiritual leaders in their home, not dictators, not tyrants, not arrogant slave drivers, servant leaders, spiritual leaders. We lead the way in patience. We lead the way in grace. We lead the way in love, but we also lead the way in truth. We lead the way in discipline. We lead the way in solving problems. Well, pastor, that's just not my personality. Mama's better at it than I am. You know what? It doesn't matter if leadership isn't your personality. It's your God-given responsibility. God doesn't give us a personality test to take in the Bible that qualifies us as either being a leader, leader or that gives us an exemption from being a leader. God expects men to lead. He knows how he made you, sir. He knows how he made you. And having a passive type personality is actually a strength for you. But that's that's not an exception clause to to bow out of your God-given responsibility. And just because you have a loud personality, sir, doesn't mean you can get away with uncontrolled anger. Just because you're loud doesn't mean you're leading. That's your personality. And hear me, men. Leadership in the home does mean soliciting and listening to the wisdom and advice and opinion of our wife before we do anything. We'd be foolish to act independently of our God-given spouse. But at the end of the day, God has put a burden on our shoulders as men to lead our families. And shame on us if our passivity hinders us from doing so. And mama, you'd do well to let daddy lead. Some men can never lead because they can't talk. Because their voice, personality-wise, just isn't as loud as mama's. Mama, the best thing you could do for your husband is let him lead. And encourage him to lead. And find those, those wise, gentle ways to nudge him when he needs nudged. Not to boss him. Not to nag him. Not to shove him in the back and say, step it up, but to by by the Holy Spirit's leading, give him those gentle nudges when you sense passivity. But let him lead. Are you seeing the ugliness of sin tonight? It's ugly. I got a question in closing. Where's God in all this? Are you with me? Where's God in all this? He's not mentioned once in this passage. It's just dark. Well, I want you to know God's still in it. You know what, You know where God is? He is on his throne, fulfilling his word. It's a dark word. It's a hard word, but he's fulfilling his word. He's fulfilling the word of judgment that he gave David back in chapter 12. The word I started with. The sword will never depart from your house. God's still in control. And so fulfilling his word of judgment. I want you to think about this. David sinned sexually against Bathsheba. Amnon sinned sexually against Tamar. David influenced Joab to do his dirty work just like Jonadab influenced Amnon. David murdered Uriah just like Absalom murdered Amnon. What's the point? The very sins... That David had inflicted on others in chapter 11. Were the very sins by which he would be inflicted in chapter 13. God was seeing to it that David had become the victim of the sins he had once committed. And even worse. That judgment came through the sins of his own children. Hear me. The sin sown by the father. Is often harvested in the life of his own kids. You could say it this way, the sins of one generation imprint the sins of the next generation. And God in his grace gave us this he gave us this warning Exodus 20. Thou shalt not bow down myself to them nor serve them for I the Lord am a jealous God visiting, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. We can't get away with sin. And somehow think it won't trickle down. These stories, as dark as they are, are written for us to learn from. And here's what we're supposed to learn from the story. We're supposed to learn how far-reaching the consequences of sin can become. Especially how our sin affects and potentially destroys our family. And I'm not afraid to tell you tonight, this story should scare the tar out of us. I'm serious. It should scare us away from sin. That's what it's meant to do. But I want you to hear me. The only hope that any of us have to not repeat the sin of David is to embrace David's son. The greater David. Jesus himself. Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen to me, and I'm done. The ugliness of sin doesn't have to play itself out in your life like it did in David's. If you're a child of God tonight, your sin was crucified with Christ. It was paid for. It was defeated by by placing your faith in him daily, by remembering the cross regularly. You can live in victory. I think I've said it probably too many times, but this is why I want to do communion more and more and more and more to remind you that you've been crucified with Christ. You can fight sin with his help. You can turn your back on the old man. It's not who you are. If you're here tonight and you're going through some of the consequences of past sin, if you're a child of God, I want to tell you something. You can endure those consequences without quitting on the Lord. Just remember what he says in Hebrews chapter 12. He only chastises those who are his. And he does it because he loves you. Your failure isn't final. You may not be able to erase what you did like David can't erase 2 Samuel 13 out of his story. There's no white out. There's no backspace button. You might have to endure the chastisement of God, but don't be weary and faint in your mind like the author of Hebrews says. You take comfort that God's doing this because he loves you, he's for you, and he wants to use you again. Ye which are spiritual, restore such in one in the spirit of meekness. So don't let this message depress you Let it encourage you. If God chastises you, it means he's not done with you. You hear me? Restore. The same word that they used to describe the disciples mending their nets. Why did they mend their nets after they fished all night and they were tired? It's simple. Because they wanted to use their nets again the next day. Why should we restore a fallen brother? Because God wants to use them again. It's that simple. We love the sinner because God loves the sinner. But that doesn't erase the far-reaching consequences of sin that can sometimes weave its way through our own families. Let's love our kids enough. Let's love our grandkids enough to live holy lives so that they aren't affected by our selfishness. Would you stand here?